Emotet is back! A fake FBI warning, Samba vulnerabilities, and a hijackable self-driving suitcase, of course. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thanks for listening. I am Doug. He is Paul. Doug, if you hear me sniggering by mistake, it's not that I'm sniggering at your fun fact. It's just that the self-driving suitcase. Of course. I know what's coming, and it's it's whizzing around in my head. Not the suitcase. <laughs> just the concept. <laughs> it's a must-watch video, and uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> and, oh, uh, dear. Several things have gone wrong in, in <laughs> the right way, if you're a, a casual observer like we are. Um, our fun fact for the week is that the idea of the transistor technology was way ahead of its time. The concept was originally proposed by Austro-Hungarian physicist Julius Edgar way back in 1926, but it took until 1947 for the first working device to actually get built. And this will, of course, tie into our This Week in Tech History segment later in the show. So stay tuned for that. I'm trying to guess, Doug, whether you're going to go forwards to integrated circuits or backwards to... Let's see. I wait with bated breath. And I would say, just yeah. have to stay out of the way of that jolly suitcase until the end of the <laughs> podcast. That's all. Yep. Okay. Well, let's start with something uh, not quite as fun. Emotet, the botnet to rule all botnets. Let's talk about what it is and why this is big news. And then we can get to the secondary question of, was it ever really gone? But what's going on with this, uh, this story here, Paul? Well, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with that word emotet, as you say, to most people who've heard of bots or zombies or malware, delivery malware, whatever you want to call it, emotet's not just a bot, it's like the bot. And that name applies not only to the malware that the crooks used, but to the gang, the ecosystem, the team, the crew, whatever you want to call them, that used it. And they were rightly world infamous for what they did with it, which was pretty much, as I said, to act as a malware delivery network. They did the hard work of distributing their, what you might call, beachhead malware onto computers all over the world. And then essentially it's up to other crooks to come along and say, yeah, you know what? I fancy a bit of spyware. I want to do some key logging. I've got ransomware in mind. Well, I'd like to steal a load of data. I just want to have a look around. I want to do crypto mining, whatever it is. For the right price, you can essentially pay to play. And that malware itself is there to deliver other malware in a surreptitious, persistent, dangerous way. So that's what we mean by emotet. There are lots of malware families and malware types out there that do exactly this thing. It's not just emotet. But like you said, they were the 200 kilogram gorilla of malware distribution malware. And in February this year, they sort of disappeared after a much publicized, justifiably, Europol takedown. But as you say, the second question is, did they ever really go away or did they just keep their heads down for a while? Because it looks as though they or someone very like them using very similar technology very similar techniques, tools, procedures, is back. Who would have thought? Gone dark, maybe. Maybe they went on vacation. Exactly. Let, let the 
the heat died down a little bit from the uh, the Europol investigations and busts. Or maybe they just operated temporarily under another guise. Yeah. I guess, Doug, if you've just got your payment from ransomware crooks who've just made 10 times $4 million, you probably don't have to work Monday to Friday, 52 weeks of the year. No, you can kind of set your own schedule. I reckon. And maybe (laughs) it's as simple as that what happened. The thing is, it doesn't matter whether this is the same crooks who've come out of the woodwork, whether it's new crooks who've just taken over the old code, whether it's new crooks who've written code based on the old code. It doesn't really matter. The point is that while Emotet may have been seen to have gone away, this whole idea of malware to deliver other malware did not. So, you know, I've read of things like Boa Loader and Bazaar Loader and other names that operate in the same niche. Emotet may have gone dark, but the whole malware scene, sadly, did not go dark with it. And now it smells as though the lights are back on. Uh-huh. And that ties into our advice at the end of the article, the first point of which is that old malware rarely actually dies. Yes, that's an important point to remember. Sometimes it happens. You don't get an awful lot of floppy disk viruses these days. <laughs> but that wasn't because there's anything <laughs> fundamentally flawed, mm-hmm. if I can use that word, with yeah. the concept of loading malware at boot time. It's just that you don't get floppy disks anymore. The problem is that for all the new TTPs, tools, techniques, and procedures that modern malware criminals are coming up with, we still have to worry about all the old ones, or almost all of them. If malware techniques died out simply through age, we wouldn't have phishing, would we? And that ties in nicely with our next piece of advice. Don't focus on individual malware families or malware types when planning your protection. Indeed. Now, I'd like to think that all of our listeners know this perfectly well, but it is easy to get distracted by the best-known threat names or the best-known threat types. However, the approach that we would use if all you wanted to do was stop Emotet in particular and ransomware specifically, would be so close to what you'd need to do to stop as much malware and attacks of this sort as you could, that you might as well make sure you take the generic approach rather than focusing too much on the specifics. Although Emotet was a big, bad operator in the malware scene, and although ransomware is where you're most likely to face those breathtaking demands for blackmail money, Unfortunately, as bad as they are, they're actually only just really drops in a very much bigger cybercrime ocean. And then finally, consider managed threat response. Let's face it, few organizations, even ones that already have a large IT team and maybe a network security operations center of their own, have time to have dedicated anti-ransomware, anti-emotet, malware-specific responders, for example, on duty all of the time. So getting a trusted third party in to help you when you need people who've done the job before, who specialise in that aspect of cyber defence, can be a great idea. In the same way that 
everyone's got smoke alarms at home, I trust, but not many people have their own fire engine sitting full of water and diesel in their own garage in case they get a fire. It's not efficient, and in a way, it's kind of not fair on everyone else because the 99.999% of the time that you're not using that resource, it could be out helping other people. Exactly. All right, that is Amotep Malware. The report of my death was an exaggeration on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Moving right along, this next story is wild. It is an FBI email hack, and I have two questions that I hope you can answer. The first is, what are fast flux technologies? That was a new phrase to me, and it sounds <laughs> delightful. And uh, what, what are these scammers trying to get out of this? They don't appear to be actually trying to get people to do anything. Yes, that's the interesting question, and it can be very difficult to guess the motivation of a cyber criminal whom you have never met, and probably never will. But it does appear that crooks were able to send a bunch of warning emails via the FBI's early warning system, just text emails, so there's no link, there's no attachment, there's no magic phone number. The call to action is simply, hey, here's an email, and it says the subject line, urgent, threat actor in systems. Our intelligence monitoring indicates exfiltration of several of your virtualized servers, and then a whole load of technobabble. What were they after? I don't know, Doug. If I had to guess, I would suggest that there are three obvious things. One is that if there hadn't been a rapid warning all over the net, including on Naked Security, saying this is a hoax, don't let it be a distraction, it could have worked quite well where the crooks saw that people had believed this and they'd started doing threat response activities that were going to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and never find anything because crooks love distractions. The other thing is they named and shamed somebody in what's known in spamming terms as a Joe job. It's where you claim somebody else did something bad and what you hope is it will create an adverse reaction for that person. In particular, maybe people start piling onto them saying, how dare you? Maybe try and knock them offline. Maybe think they're being vigilantes. That the person they named and shamed is, as far as I know, a bona fide cybersecurity researcher. And they allege that he is affiliated with the extortion gang, The Dark Overlord. In fact, he's written a book in which he talks about attacks like this, including investigating Dark Overlord. So it could be just a hatchet job. Yeah, just sending a message and yeah. Yeah, and, and hoping that people go, right. I'm going to say something nasty about him on Twitter. I'm going to flood his network with packets. I'm going to take some vigilante action against him. You watch. I'll show whose side I'm on. And of course, if you do that, you're playing to the hands of the crooks because all the pack of lies. And the last thing is, as someone asked me this on Naked Security, I just figured maybe it's a, what Percy Shelley would have called the Ozymandias King of Egypt thing. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Hey, <laughs> look what I can do. Yeah. So I don't know. Possibly all of the above. And they were kind enough to introduce us to the concept of fast flux technologies, which I assumed at first read to be uh, just total gibberish, but it's an actual thing. And it's not for time travel. No, it's fast flux networks, not fast flux capacitors, Doug. <laughs> Well, there are two science fiction-y terms in there. They talk about black holes and they talk about fast flux. 
Now, the idea of, of black-holing malware, the idea is if you've already got traffic that's emerged onto the network and it's heading towards the crooks, what if you divert it towards a server that is not going to be harmed by it, that is not going to respond as the crooks want, then basically all those infected computers, for example, that are calling home are wasting their time. So that's what meant by black-holing. So the flip side of that, the fast flux, that's where crooks use the same sort of technology or techniques that cloud providers who provide dynamic DNS or repositioning of servers on the network do. And for that, you need what you might call a fast flux network. You need something where IP numbers and servers can move around at will on the network. And so the crooks figured that is fantastic for cybercrime because it means we can regularly change both domain names and IP numbers. A little bit like changing a PO box number every five minutes, changing your street name or your street address every five minutes, but still magically have the parcels arrive so that the crooks can handle them. So they, they still get to the same property. It just has a different address every single time. And it's called fast flux because flux means it's changing and fast means it's changing quickly, often within uh, seconds or minutes. And of course, the reason for doing that is if you think about something like black holing or block listing, you rely on knowing, ah, that's destined to go somewhere bad. So if the crooks can continually force you to rewrite your block list, that gives them a way to counteract the effects of block lists and black holes. So that is a rather long explanation of fast flux. It's basically where you make detecting the domain names, the server names, and the IP numbers that the crooks are using. It's where the crooks make those into a fast and ever-moving target. Fascinating. I learned so much. You learn something every week. Having said that, the way they, th this email that the jargon is stitched together, it does just <laughs> come out as babble, doesn't it? Yeah. For all that, for all that, some of them are these sort of hyperbolic terms that the industry does genuinely use in its own jargon speech, and that do have genuine meanings put together as they are. It's just, hey, we're babbling at you. That was what made me think. There's this whole look on my works, you mighty and despair angle to this. Mm -hmm. That the crooks don't seem to really care whether you believe it. They just want you to look and think. My golly, that's what they did for fun over the weekend. <laughs> if that's what they do when they're being frivolous, I wonder how bad it is when they get serious. Guess we, we, we already know the answer to that question. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, we have some advice for people here. It's uh, three don'ts. Don't panic. Don't contact the FBI. And don't believe what you're reading in this uh, email, especially about the accusations against. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, that is FBI email hack spreads fake security alerts. Here's what to do on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. We will take a quick break and talk about this week in tech history. This week on November 16th, 1904. Ah, you're going backwards, not forwards. No ICs. Excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, a patent for the first vacuum tube was filed. It was called the oscillation valve by its inventor, Joseph Fleming, and it later became known as the Fleming valve. Vacuum tube technology reigned supreme in the early days of electronics and is considered one of its most important developments. It would take around 50 years for the transistor to be invented, which eventually supplanted vacuum tube technology. So thank you, Mr. Fleming. Indeed. And that helps you understand, Doug, why 
what you guys call tubes, or tubes as you might say it in standard British pronunciation, we call valves. You named them after their appearance, because they're in glass, they're in evacuated glass tubes, and we named them after their function, namely that they are electronic valves that switch at electronic speeds. Compared to an electromechanical relay, orders of magnitude faster. Where they were used in things like amplifiers or as digital switches in the first really fast digital computers, valves, because that's what they are. They switch electrical circuits, like a tap or a faucet or a spigot turns water on and off. So yeah, thank you, Mr. Fleming. Now let us talk about Samba. Oh, Step one, check to see if you still have SMB1 running anywhere, because uh, although this has been patched, if you haven't yet, this could be a pretty nasty vulnerability for you. It could. uh, As our listeners will probably know, Samba, the product, it's the closest name that the creator of the product, Dr. Andrew Tridgell OAM, he's an Aussie, as the OAM will tell you. That's like a sort of the equivalent of something like an an MBE in Australia. So a lot of people get them for playing cricket really well or being a famous actor. He got his for his immense contribution to the open source community, including figuring out how do we get what was then Microsoft's proprietary SMB server message block protocol, which Microsoft sort of inherited from IBM. How do I get that, given that it's proprietary, to work with my Linux and Unix servers? Like networks, although they can be used to separate people if you want them to, the main idea of a network is to interconnect people. That's why we call it the internet, Internet. not the chop them up net. (laughs) And so he came up with this idea of, well, let's let me let me stare at the packets until I understand them. So he didn't steal any source code or do anything naughty. He just simply figured, oh, I can see how they're doing that. And he wrote an equivalent compatible implementation so far as he could. He didn't want to call it SMB, plus it's hard to say, so he called it Samba. And back in the olden days, you know, it was a product of its era. It allowed the important part of network file sharing connections, namely the authentication, to be done in insecure ways, because we didn't worry too much about that back in the day, right? So SMB1 had an option that said, don't bother with scrambling or encrypting or hashing the passwords. Just send the passwords and clear over the network. I'm only using it on my own little five computer LAN. I don't care. If you still have computers that have SMB1 enabled and they can be tricked by some rogue computer on your network that says, hey, I see you're about to log in. Well, if you support SMB1, I'm an old fashioned server. Now, of course, telling a pack of lies, your server may support SMB2, SMB3 just fine. But it's jumped in first and saying, by the way, try again, but use an Use a plain text password, and then it grabs that password. Then they can go and log into your servers that are secure using more recent versions of SMB. And that's one of the bugs that was fixed in the latest Samba release. The developers discovered that if you just happen to have four non-default configuration settings, which you might if you were determined to support this super extra legacy software, then the Samba client could be tricked into leaking your password onto your network or even onto the internet. Once you've whispered the secret onto the wire, too late. So that's why this patch is important. 
And we've got some advice here. The first uh, bullet being stop using SMB1 anywhere. Yes, if you can, uh, you ought to be able to. The reason I say you ought to be able to is in 2019, Microsoft itself put out a technical bulletin saying basically in huge letters, don't use SMB1 anymore. And when even Microsoft puts it like that about one of their <laughs> own legacy products, <laughs> I'd listen. Mm -hmm. And the reason they said that in 2019 is two years before in, that, in the version that came out in, I think, September 2017 of Windows 10 and of Windows Server, they actually announced SMB1 will not be installed by default. If you want it, you will have to go in yourself and install it the hard way afterwards. We're doing this for your own good. And obviously that, that message didn't quite soak in. <laughs> so two years later, they said, no, exclamation point. Don't do it. Move on. We really mean it. Okay. And then we've got uh, upgrade to Samba 4.15.2. Yes, that's the latest number. There are, there are two older supported versions. There's 4.14 and 4.13. So those are 4.14.10, 4.13.14 or later, depending on when you get round to this. Because it's not just this SMB1, you could leak your passwords. There are a bunch of other bugs that are fixed. So you may as well get all those fixes at the same time. Most of those have to do with stuff related to Active Directory uh, and not specific to SMB1. And then a great piece of advice, regardless if you're running Samba or not, plan to review all your authentication, password hashing, and protocol settings regularly. Yes, Doug, because I suspect that there are probably lots of listeners who strongly suspect that they haven't used SMB1 for years and that they don't have it anywhere. But if you don't go and check, you can never be sure. So the point there is that if there are things that you think that you have removed from your ecosystem, you need to regularly go back and check because A, you might have forgotten some and B, some of them might have come back to haunt you thanks to something like Shadow IT. All right, that is Samba update patches, plain text, password plundering problem. Nice alliteration there. And uh, it's now time to talk about, we've all been waiting for the self-driving smart suitcase that the person behind you can hijack. I'd like to say I put that out of my mind for all of the what I've been saying so far, but <laughs> it was still reeling around drunkenly in the background <laughs> of my mind. Yeah, keyword drunkenly. I, that is. I don't know whether... I think we're allowed to laugh at this one, Doug, aren't we? Sure. Because if you're the kind of person that has only just realized you need a self-driving robot Bluetooth suitcase and you're determined to buy this one, there is a way that you can actually overcome the main security flaw here, but it requires you to make sure you do things in a specific order when you deploy it. So over to you. Start the story because I, I can't keep a straight face. <laughs> I was going to say, we don't want to disparage innovation or invention or people that work hard on products like this. Or but, indeed to disparage robot suitcases. Exactly. But this, this could be fixed. Uh, this is just a, uh, a software and perhaps a firmware update away from being fixed for n not slamming into everything. But it, this also has this, an impressive Bluetooth uh, feature in it, but not an impressive pairing code in order to connect to the Bluetooth. So that's kind of the big issue here. Yes. So to explain, it's an airline suitcase, a carry-on suitcase. You Americans seem to tolerate much bigger carry-on bags mm -hmm. than we do. 
But Doug, have you ever stopped to wonder why, in the, even with modern wheelie suitcases, why on earth do you need to pull the suitcase yourself? I haven't wondered that until today. Why don't you add a whole load of extra weight to the suitcase in the form of rechargeable batteries, motors, and special driven wheels, and then instead of having to pull that extra weight yourself, why doesn't the suitcase simply follow you using its robotic, autonomous, semi-self-driving mode, homing in on a Bluetooth beacon that you wear round your wrist like a wristwatch? Exactly. So you pair the suitcase with your little wrist strap, and then you set off through the airport very carefully, and the suitcase allegedly follows you in much the same way from the video I saw as that friend of yours that spent too long in the airside bar and you finally got them to try and follow <laughs> you to the gate in the same way that they follow you. You have to keep stopping and turning around and make sure they haven't fallen over or weaved off into the wrong terminal. Yeah, or a or... toddler. It's also what, how a toddler would follow you through the airport, yes. So yes, what could possibly go wrong You normally here? hold a toddler by the hand next to you, don't you? Like yeah. <laughs> you normally hold on to your suitcase so that you, mm -hmm. you know that it hasn't <laughs> yeah. been scooped up by somebody else. So I don't know what the airport rules will say about this because you're supposed to keep your suitcase in sight at all times, aren't you? Mm -hmm. So having it, having it drunkenly following you and steering around other people, presumably this would get exciting if they too had self-driving suitcases because the suitcases would also have to avoid each other. Jokes aside, as you say, the neat thing about the Bluetooth control part of this suitcase is that it allows the suitcase to pair with two controlling devices at the same time. Now, as the, the people who looked into this, they're, they're probably well known to you if you read up about hacks like this. We certainly love them on Naked Security. They're, they're based not far from, from us, across in the next county, and uh, they're called Pen Test Partners penetration testing partners, PTP. And whenever they see an IoT device that they never knew they needed before, they know they need it now. <laughs> and so they've looked into things like something we wrote about this on Naked Security a few years ago. It was a $99 bicycle padlock that you could unlock in 0 0.8 seconds with your fingerprint or with an app. 0 0.8 seconds unlocked with a legit app or you could use an unofficial app and unlock anyone's lock in two seconds, all for $99. <laughs> so when they'd written about this suitcase, we figured, okay, we want to know what's good about it, what's bad about it. What's good about it is it doesn't just let you pair either with the wristband, as you'd probably use it in the airport, so you didn't have to have your phone in your hand, and you could walk it through areas where phones aren't allowed. But it can pair with your phone at the same time. And this is quite cool, actually. When you've paired it with your phone, they've got this app which... And it's basically like, a, like an RC car. And it's got quite some heft to it. PTP showed it in their video. You steer it with a little virtual joystick and it goes, doesn't half whiz around the place, knocking people over and crashing into other robot suitcases, I imagine. The problem is that once you pair it with your wristband, it doesn't go, OK, I am under my owner's control now. I will ignore other people who want to take me over. So anyone who sees your suitcase following you and casually follows your suitcase and has the app on their phone can pair with your suitcase and they never have to touch it. And then they can basically steer it off and steal it. They don't have to leave any fingerprints on it. They don't have to go even go very near it. The only thing is they have to guess. 
the eight-digit pairing pin. Guess what it is, Douglas? I'm going to guess... Hmm. One, 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 one. Yes. I <laughs> thought I'd be smug and clever, and I guessed seven eight four eight two two seven three, which spells suitcase, which would be bad enough because if it's the same on every device, it doesn't matter how complicated the code is. Once one person knows it, everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. But they went and picked the one digit on the US telephone keypad <laughs> that can't spell anything because there are no letters associated with one <laughs> yep. and only one. So they figured, well, let's have eight of those. So that's the problem. Hardwired password, the same on every device, and the fact that once you've paired it and it's supposed to have locked onto you and be following you through airports, which are supposed to be secure areas, uh, anybody else can wander up and go, hey, let me try and pair to it. You might never even consider pairing it with your phone because you figure, no, I'm pairing it with my wristband. And the problem is, if you don't pair it with your phone, then anybody else can pair it with theirs. And the other reason why you might not pair it with your phone is that the company that makes this thing, they haven't quite got their app into a condition where they can get it on Google Play yet. So you have to oh. sideload it. Ooh. So. Someone who buys this and they're going to travel on business, work's not going to let them sideload this app just so they can show off their RC suitcase in the airport <laughs> concourse, are they? They're going to say, no, 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 use it with the wristband. So poor design on an IoT device. Who would have thought? If you're a programmer and you're thinking of using hardwired passwords, don't, don't do, it. do that. Okay. Well, that is the self-driving smart suitcase that the person behind you can hijack. And we implore you to go, at the very least, watch the video in the bottom of this article. Yes, that's not our video. Let's be clear, that's PTP's video. You can find it on their website or on Naked Security. We couldn't resist putting it in. It's only one minute long. I think you will agree, this is the amazing product that you never knew you needed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. I can't wait to see these raving round airports. And uh, we will, in, in that spirit, we will switch to our Oh No of the Week. And this is a listener-submitted Oh No from oh, our so. friend Matthias. Did you know, Douglas, where Matthias is from? Where is he from? He is from a place in the northern cold parts of the United States. Oh my gosh, he's a fellow Minnesotan. Oh, is that how you say it? I thought you said Minnesota. Well, he's from Minnesota, which makes him a Minnesotan. Yeah, so there you go. Excellent. At any rate, he writes, Recently got a report from a user that her monitor at work kept defaulting to her laptop screen instead of the external monitor attached to the docking station. She had a similar setup at home and reported that no issues happened there. To resolve the issue, she was closing the laptop and opening it again. I was suspecting a possible intermittent hardware issue and was scheduled to go out there to install a new laptop for another user anyway. I figured I would swing by and check it out. Generally, this user is easy to work with and, I'm inserting this myself, very importantly, good at Googling. So I didn't suspect a simple fix. That was my first mistake. Upon investigation and asking the user to demonstrate the issue, I came to find out that her external screen was physically positioned to the left side of her laptop, but in Windows, the screen was set to the right side positioning. So if you right-click in Windows and you choose 
display settings and you have it a second monitor, it will default to the right side. The user could not figure out how to move the window of an application from screen to screen because of this preference setting. So she was closing the laptop to force the window over to the external monitor oh, right. as a workaround. Could she get to the left side of the laptop screen and it would hit up against the wall? Exactly. Whereas if she'd gone off the right-hand side of the screen, boy, how confusing it is when that oh, happens. Oh, my God. Like using it's a mouse worst. upside down, isn't it? Yeah. And it suddenly, in fact, am I allowed to say this, but I, that used to be quite a fun Choke, didn't it? You went and you know how prank. you can change the aperture, the mm -hmm. amount of space that you've got where the mouse will actually glide between the two. Yeah. Uh -huh. So you could narrow that down to somebody so that it would work some of the time and not the rest. I never did that. I want you to know that, Doug. Okay. So but, he continues. Uh, uh, I swapped the monitor <laughs> positioning and, and demonstrated the ability to move applications from screen to screen. This was a revelation to the user, and I was the hero of the day. Remotely troubleshooting this issue would have not resulted in much because you cannot view the physical position of screens in reference to the primary monitor or laptop, which is very true. Yes. Remote IT is very, very powerful, except in circumstances like this. If you have an no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. And thank you, Matthias, for sending that over. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay. Keep your eye on your suitcase at all times. <laughs> <laughs>